1: I mean, come on, no one plans to get sick, and yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and I'm still here. I also survived our broken healthcare system, and I wanna help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together because we're all out of patience. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the show. A quick reminder before we get started, if you do like this show, I really hope you do, please leave me a review or rating perhaps on Apple Podcasts, or don't, up to you. On the show today, the venerable Craig Lipson, storied luminary in the annals of clinical trial innovation, and I mean innovation with a capital I. None of that lowercase crap right here on the show. Craig is the founder of, of Clinical Innovation Partners and the co-founder of, acronym warning, Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance, DTRA. He's a proud expatriated Long Islander who pronounces Rutgers the proper way and has a penchant for Wegmans, so he ticks every box. Craig's also been at the literal forefront, and I don't overuse the word literal, of clinical trial research and development for over 30 years. A warning that the following episode may contain explicit acronyms and an overdose of syllables. In the spoiler alert of today's episode with Craig Lipset, I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, what is your favorite food shopping experience and why is it Wagman's?
2: Well, my favorite food shopping experience is Wegmans because they were like the last holdout still selling tab. And to my knowledge, for all I know, they still have some secret inventory in the in the way,
1: way back. But wasn't it just W pop tab instead of tab tab? They, they had both. They could pull it both off. They, uh, they, they kept the good stuff. Yeah, as a downstater who went upstate to Binghamton, I was like, what the hell is pop? And why do they make different colored Wegman sodas? And then I had them and I'm like, this is so much better than the crap on the shelves in Staten Island. Ouch. I yeah, know. You know, Danny Wegman had it figured out. Did you work there? I have so many friends
2: at college that work there. By the way, I'm not a SUNY B guy. I went to a different BU, Brandeis University. Um, but I did go to a uh, grad school up in Syracuse at SUNY upstate medical center. So I, I did navigate my way around the, uh,
1: the greater <laughs> SUNY system of upstate New York. I have a funny Syracuse story before we get to even like anything of meat and potatoes. I just have to, my Syracuse story is at the, the, the dome, the Syracuse dome. Um, it's worth telling the story cause it's just so stupid and it's so college, but I went there to see Billy Joel. And of course you did. Of course I did. For for those that don't know, the Syracuse Dome is an inflatable roof. It's very rare. I don't know how they did it, but it's inflatable. And at some point during the concert, Billie Joel asks, like all forty thousand of us, to look up at the ceiling and inhale at the same time to collapse the roof. That's brilliant. And the outcome didn't work, but we all. Mm. You know, I mean, the best part was we're all just stupid college students, and we all tried to do it. <laughs>
2: I love that it's the uh, the Carrier Dome, but there's no air conditioning, so they can't really use it in the summer.
1: Yeah, you'd think the Carrier Air Conditioning Company that sponsored the naming rights to the Carrier Dome would have air conditioning in the Carrier Dome. Kind of off-brand. Yeah. <laughs> Very off-brand. Anyway, I digress. Welcome to Out of Patience. It's been a long time coming to have you on the show. I've been a long-time uh, follower, first-time listener. Is that the opposite way of saying it? <laughs> I, I'll go with the inverse, and uh, and we'll meet halfway. All right. So, do
2: you say Rutgers or Ruggers? I just need to know that. Get that out of the way. Well, well I'm not a hardcore New Jersey guy, so I just say Rutgers. But for all I know, that that's really blowing it. I, I'm really uh, from the other side of the Hudson. I'm a I'm a Long Island guy, so um, I'm
1: going Rutgers. You did say Long Island, which I should correct you. It's actually Long Island. <laughs> I don't know who raised you, Craig, but that is incorrect. I've been off the island for too long. What can I say, (laughs) man? You've been neutralized. I love it. (laughs) I have. They've scrubbed me. Well, all right. I I will let the listeners know. We're going to put a link to your uh, LinkedIn in the episode description, but you have the longest and most beautiful profile scroll on LinkedIn of anyone that I've ever seen ever. And the best part about it is you're still doing everything on the scroll, because it's like started here to present, started here to present. You never stop doing anything, and you're like this gathering genius of all the things. A, do you sleep? I know you have kids. And B, what doesn't keep you up at night that you keep pounding away at innovation?
2: Well, look, it may look like a long scroll, but when you get to the bottom, I don't have my high school listed.
1: Oh, this is a dig, some shaded Brian Lowe from inspire but yet i have my high school on my linkedin because of brian Lowe at inspire so i see what you did there and i raise you brian low i raise you brian low
2: i am i'm down with that so look uh you know there's a lot of work to do here and i like to think yes there's a lot of things i have going on but it's all surrounding the same problem all of my time and energy is around clinical trials and medicine development. Yeah, I'm tackling it from a lot of different ways concurrently, but it's all one problem. And there's a lot of challenges there to try to address. So why not surround it from as many different angles as possible? Yeah, it might keep me up a little bit at night, but look, uh, I'm getting older.
1: We We don't sleep as much anymore, do we? No, but I mean, I actually read some of the, uh, I go back to LinkedIn all the time. Like people said some nice things about you on LinkedIn. And I know they say to, to not read the comments, but you should really read your LinkedIn comments because apparently you're you're kind of a nice guy that does really cool things and people look up to you. But I guess the first question I have is not just why is that, but also what possessed you to take on the Herculean, improbable, Sisyphusian, lots of, Greek God-laden metaphor-driven clinical trials universe? So, first of all, you know, I actually get so much
2: energy from the comments of people, and in particular from strangers. So, every now and then, like somebody will send me something nice on Twitter or LinkedIn, and I'll emphasize something nice. I'm not saying that there's some nasty things slipped in there, but getting a message from a complete stranger on social media that you helped inspire them to take a chance and to try something different is amazing like it is some of the best energy in this space to be able to pick up. So I'm so grateful for folks that take the time to drop a line back and share that maybe something I said, shared, posted, helped inspire them to take a chance and try something different. Maybe it's something different in how they're planning a study, using a new tool, engaging people in a better way. Maybe it's taking a chance in their career and trying something different. But that just that just fires me up. You know, for me personally, coming into this space, at first, it was all about my love for public health. Like this, to me, clinical research was just a public health challenge Coupled with an exorbitant amount of money being spent on it. Right. So, usually you go to work in public health and you end up in a sector that doesn't have a lot of spend being applied. But if you think about clinical research and medicine development as a public health challenge, the pharmacoeconomics behind it are like mind boggling in terms of the cost to develop a single medicine. So, that kind of is what drew me in. But What keeps me there is, you know, just the energy from working with so many different people, as well as, you know, research or heal thyself. I'm a patient. Lots of people in this sector are patients themselves. And like me and like many others, affected by conditions that don't have an approved medicine available. And so the irony of being a drug developer and working in this space for years and being told you have a diagnosis without
1: an approved medicine Let's just say that certainly keeps me here. Do you think that over the past 20 plus years, with all the work that nonprofits have done to destigmatize the myth that clinical trial as just two English words set in succession still means guinea pig?
2: If you watch media and you watch late night television, clinical trial participation is not portrayed the way it's really experienced. You know, you look at data that comes back from the vast majority, over 80 plus percent of people who are in clinical trials say they received the same or better care than they were otherwise receiving. That's awesome, right? But still today, you know, in people's minds, that's not the expectation they have coming in. Now, I think that advocacy groups have done a fabulous job of helping to raise awareness about research opportunities. But quite honestly, the pandemic, the year 2020, people following medicine development, people watching how many friends and neighbors participated in the clinical trials just for the vaccines alone, I think that may do as much or better in terms of driving awareness and helping to destigmatize participation.
1: Yeah, we had jokingly talked about years ago, is there a better term for that at the consumer level? Because if you think about it, (laughs) you know, no one wakes up and says, I can't wait to be in a Catruda clinical trial one day. You're entering a space where that word is kind of boogeyman when it's spoken the first time. Is there a better way to approach, you know, we now are like patient-centered care and taking care of the patient first. Like these are scared people oftentimes from disparate communities that are either uh, low income, low education, low literacy. How does that manifest now in practice? So
2: I I can't disagree that clinical trial is not exactly the best brand to go forward with. I think if, if, if folks were back in Madison Avenue and kind of rethinking the brand for research participation. There's definitely a lot of work to be done there. Even just the word trial is uh, separate from the clinical aspect of it. This is just very unappealing. And for years, people would ask me, well, Craig, maybe we could have an app that people will put on their phone and it'll help them to find clinical trials. And I look at them and think, who wants to be in a clinical trial once, nevertheless, to go back to having an app on your phone and go back to being them over and over again? I think that there is a rebrand out there, though, and I think a lot of it is going to be powered by changes and how research studies will be run going forward. A lot of that is happening because of master protocols. A lot of that is happening because of these massive observational studies that anybody can sign up for. And when you start to slam some of these trends together, you can see a different way that people engage in research rather than subjects are getting
1: pulled into a clinical trial. I've talked ad nauseum in the past on this show and in my work at Stupid Cancer and Advocacy that it's often very difficult, for no malevolent reason, for academia to speak consumer. And that there is this variable Charlie Brown teacher-ish metaphor when you go through the process that, yeah, you have to explain things in clinical academic you know, pragmatic medical terms, but where's the babblefish, rhetorically, I guess, that gets that into the ears of the scared human beings sitting there on the other side of the desk where they can interpret this as a, I mean, they're scared and terrified, a non threatening or a less threatening approach to say, you're going on a trial, experimental medicine.
2: First of all, there is to me something ironic about using the phrase ad nauseum and trying to make things consumer friendly. Just say it makes you nauseous thinking about these uh, these types of words and phrases. But I do I I do agree. And, And when you look at, you know, the the surrogate that people in research take for what you're describing, it's. We have to take our informed consent and turn it into a sixth grade or seventh grade reading level document. Again, that's not about making it consumer accessible or friendly or receptive. I'm not talking about using coercive language, just using accessible language. And yeah, turning it into a seventh grade reading level is good,
1: but that's very different from what you're describing in terms of an ideal state. I look at it as like customer service, if you would, but it's reverse customer service because no one asks to be having that conversation one day. You happen to be, you know, when bad things happen to good people, especially in cancer, you're not expecting to have this conversation. I think you pre-research this in advance of being in that room. I'm just focusing right now on the moment of being discussing this with your first oncologist experience, right? Your first oncology experience is nothing more than customer service. How do you explain this? How do you understand this? How was this imparted to you? And, you know, we talk about determinants. Everything could be contingent on that one doctor's personality or predisposition for empathy or backstory on authority or age or demographic. Where is there... I mean, I, I would love to think there's some insight at this point into that one sort of um, that trajectory, that moment when Dr. A is talking to patient A for the first time and that there is a trial available. Thankfully, they don't throw them on first line right away. So much in there. Yeah. Right. So first of all, the idea that
2: people would accept being viewed as a consumer relationship in this context. People really get hung up. People, There are a lot of people that have an aversion to the idea of bringing a customer service mindset into a clinical setting. Um, but there's so much to learn from that. And there's so much best practice to draw off of, to do it right. But, you know, the other angle to what you were just bringing up is, What's going to motivate a physician to even talk about research, even if they are being customer-oriented in terms of the language they're using? We all know that during that first encounter, your ability to learn about a research participation was decided before you walked in the door. When you showed up at that doctor's office, you preordained what range of clinical trials you will now be made aware of, that if you went to an oncologist out in the community, the conversation about research participation is going to look radically different than one in an academic center. And if you went to one at academic center A, that conversation is gonna look radically different than if you went across the street to academic center B. That conversation was decided the moment you walked in the door.
1: back with our guest after the break
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you Because at CarMax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car you should love your car
1: So I want to tell you a story uh, This circulates around the word innovation. And one of my chief strategists at Stupid Cancer, her name is Elizabeth Wolfe. She's been on the show. You may know her. She's been consulting in nonprofits for 25 years. We always joke that innovation is, is like a lowercase I or a capital I. And that's like an advocate vantage because, you know, we're just the ones trying to help the patients know things exist and be their Sherpas. We went to ASCO. One year. This is a lengthy yarn, but it's worth it for the <laughs> listeners. We went to ASCO, and one of the big pharma companies held one of their um tell us your ideas and steal your IP kind of contests for nonprofits. And it was called Impact Innovation. Regardless, they picked the winner. We came back next year and they said, Here's the winner. And we've learned so much from all of you that contributed. We're changing the name of the contest from Innovation, impact, impact, innovation. And Liz and I just like drank heavily, realizing that the word innovation is just so overused and hyperbole, but yet it actually applies to you. You've done innovative things. Can you point to any three, four specific things that like, Jesus Christ, I did that. I was part of a team that did that. And here we are today. And we wouldn't be here if that innovation didn't happen.
2: So it's so funny you bring this up. When I when I joined Pfizer, and now that's gotta be about 14, 15 years ago, um, I joined I had a I had a good friend that was working there at the time. He left immediately after I joined, but his his career advice to me was never put innovation on your business card. It's a death knell. (laughs) And then a year and a half later, I'm walking around with my clinical innovation uh, Pfizer business card. But I will say this, just to do yet another digression, I did run into a guy at Pfizer. I was there for maybe a year, and he shows me his business card, and it says his name and the title, secret agent. Nice. I said, what's the deal with that? And his answer was, there's no QC process for the business cards. You just go online. You could type whatever you want. Uh, so yes, my business card did say clinical innovation there. And let me let me share like the type of range, because I, I loved your question. So on the one hand, my team, I had the opportunity to help design and help lead the industry's first fully at-home clinical trial designed and run to enable patients to participate without having to go in and out of the lead medical centers and travel. And you can imagine that in today's world, this is a pretty big deal when during COVID, During the lockdowns at the height of the pandemic, we couldn't get people in and out of these different settings. So that's on one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, we enabled thank you notes to go out to the participants in our trials. And that's the kind of innovation that, you know, at the dinner table with my kids and we're talking about, so what did you do today? And I say, we send thank you notes out and they look back and say, wow, head of clinical innovation at (laughs) Pfizer, that's pretty impressive. Didn't like your mother tell you to do that about 40 years ago. And, you know, that to me embodies like on the one end, you know, you could try to do something that's really challenging because because you're pulling together a lot of new technology and you're trying something that just hasn't been done before. But so much of innovation is just the grunt work of making something change in a big, complex process. It wasn't some radical, brilliant idea to say thank you. The hard part was actually driving that into the organization and scaling
1: it. Wouldn't you comport, and I used a big word there, that saying thank you is customer service? One would comport that that would be true
2: look you know we it i i can't disagree with you about having a customer service mindset to this uh, i think that it's only been in the last first of all okay it's only been in the last i'd say 5 years that researchers across the ecosystem in pharma are consistently even engaging with patients for their input when they're planning and designing studies. It's been done anecdotally for years, but I'd say it's probably only in the last four years that companies are really committing to this across their portfolios, right? Uh, Customer service 101, how about you listen to the customer when you're planning? In customer service 102, it's only been in maybe the last two years that organizations are and not even consistently yet, asking patients about their experience when they're in the trial. So, right, I go to Dunkin' Donuts and I'm getting a text on my phone asking how they did. You walk out of that research site after after that experience and the odds are nobody's going to ask you that question.
1: Yeah, I I love that um, your Pfizer story that don't use the word innovation. They were ahead of their time for people that used, I don't know, guru, disruptor, futurist, perhaps thought leader, you know, like we're ahead of our time before we knew we were ahead of our time. It's a very loaded question, Craig. But in terms of what's left to innovate, is it fair to say that we've come far enough in terms of drug development and immunotherapy and all the jargon, all the jargon that we have to now solve for the human experience first. And how are you aware of a trial? How do you explain, can you afford to get, you know, all, all the narratives we've been saying for 20 years are now more paramount because the drugs are there.
2: You know, in, in the world of pharma, we talk about research and development and, I'll tell you internally for years, people looked at the research side at the bench as being the place for innovation. And they'd look at the development side where you're running the clinical trials as being a big process challenge. So what do I mean by that? You look at the bench and you're saying like mRNA and, you know, CRISPR and all these exciting technologies and you're going to innovate there. But then they'd look at clinical trials and say, well, can't really innovate here. This is just a big process. And the best we could do is squeeze for process efficiency and optimize the process. And it really took a number of years before people were willing to embrace that you can do things differently in this clinical research space beyond just squeezing and tuning your old processes to try to get more juice out of them. So I, I don't disagree with you that, you know, the. like I'm not going to say that there aren't going to be any more awesome breakthroughs at the bench. There absolutely can and will be, but I think people are realizing that the opportunities to innovate and disrupt on the development side, how we're running these clinical trials, from how we're designing them, to the tools we're using to measure impact and change, to how we're making people aware and making it, it, research participation more accessible. I think all of these are great examples of where really there's so much room to move. There's so much room because, quite honestly, it just hadn't been an area of focus for a very long time.
1: I was talking with William Kantz over at the American Cancer Society. Great man. Uh, he'll be on the show, I think, later this year. About if you want to like just put the word innovation in quotes for a second, he actually was part of a major initiative with the indigenous people in, in the Southwest, getting them to a trial when there was cancer on in the tribe and on the land. And and what they had to do was they found out they By listening, first and foremost, what what an idea to listen to the people that need the service, that if they just simply were able to provide them with gas cards, and that was it. It solved not everything, but it actually got those in need to the hospital for any of their infusions and their visits. So is that innovation to have to just remember, again, customer service, these are human beings, and if you need them to go on these medications and it's in their interest to go <laughs> to go on these trials wouldn't it behoove the center to help them get there is that innovation So I'll tell you what's innovative there to
2: me, right? So the way I used to define innovation when I was at Pfizer was an idea from which you derive value. That just having an idea alone isn't enough. You actually have to do something with it, execute it, and show that something in the world has changed as a result of it. And so in that example, I think you hit on a really interesting part of it that was innovative. And I know it sounds trite to say, but stop and listen, listen to people before you do listen and understand where their challenges are and where their barriers are. And to do that now at scale and to stop and listen to diverse patient populations across different geographies to understand their barriers, that is clearly in this example was an innovation because they did something different and something changed for the better as a result of it. The positive impact came out the other side. They actually were able to implement something differently as a result of this innovation in their process of just stopping and listening.
1: All right, so final question before we wrap, and this is kind of loaded as well, but I would love to have you back for a part two at some point. Yes, we're hopefully coming out of COVID this year. We're taping this in February of 2021. But if there's one thing that has been truly revealed, the ebb tide of COVID and perhaps, you know, the last administration's polarization is that there's a lot of hesitancy now, not just for vaccines. But do you think it has ramped up additional hesitancy in cancer clinical trials? I'm pausing to think about
2: that because... Like I, I don't want to over-politicize the conversation, but you know people's beliefs probably were already there and just got amplified, exacerbated, maybe outed a little bit in terms of whether they want to believe in science or don't want to believe in science. Whether you want to trust in certain aspects of the health system or don't, uh, choose not to. And there are a lot of reasons, certainly why some patient populations lack trust in the system. And it's been, you know, it's taken generations in some communities to, to lose that trust, I don't know that this is a really interesting question to think about. First off, in terms of the vaccines, vaccine hesitancy transcends race and ethnicity. It transcends um, age and it transcends I- income, right? We see, we see a lot of hesitancy numbers and data that really can, can span across different populations. In terms of the impact there on research participation in oncology, I don't know, Matthew. I mean, one would think that, I mean, the mindset might be that because this isn't this isn't a a choice around getting a vaccine, this is a choice around life and lifespan and hope. Do you think that interest in participation is shifted down as a result of the last few years or might interest actually be leaning up as a result of increased awareness that clinical trials exist and that clinical trial participants are the ones making it happen i mean that's how all these vaccines and therapeutics came to be it's been in the mainstream language in the in the news for so many for months
1: i guess it could swing either way what do you think matthew I think we leave this on a cliffhanger because it's so intriguing. We should just talk offline and regroup. The optimist in me would like to think that yes, this has all been there, but it just got revealed. But there's an over-under on whether this will exacerbate or improve the destigmatization or the stigmatization of not being a guinea pig and not even having that term or phrase be brought into your mind when you walk into that desired opportunity you didn't ask for.
2: We have to find ways to just make research participation accessible, easy, remove the friction in this process and simply allow people to have that choice in each of their encounters. And right now there's so much friction that it's not surprising that people would back away from it, both in terms of potential stigma or other fears, but also just it takes a lot of work to find a trial. It takes a lot of work to be a participant in a trial. And so if we, can, if we can address some of that and remove some of the friction, what will be the implications in terms of just the number of more people? And granted, you're right, there may be other fears that still persist, other hesitancy that still persists.
1: But I guess we start with where there's the most friction that we can actually address. Craig Lipset, advisor, advocate, educator, speaker, mentor, innovator. That's a lot of words. Just ripped it off LinkedIn. But, you know, lover of Wegmans, expatriate from Long Island. He pronounces Rutgers Rutgers as it should be pronounced. Uh, What else? Founder of Clinical Innovation Partners, but I give him full ownership of the word innovation. Craig, thanks for coming in out of patience.
2: Matthew, it is a pleasure. And I will now go into LinkedIn and add my high school. Thanks so much for having me here. That's all for
0: today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are
2: Brianna Seeley, Jen Orangia, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna
0: Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments,
1: feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.